Well, good morning, everybody. And Nate, uh, you've been a member for nine years, says my phone. Technology. Um, and I didn't say this first service, but uh, that actually was um, particularly timely uh, to share about the Thomas ministry, especially even for uh, myself, because uh, I actually have the privilege right now walking alongside of a family um, that just got approved, and I am so excited uh, and looking forward to uh, meeting with them uh, and praying with them and delivering that gift again of generosity. And then uh, speaking of uh, speaking of prayer, um, last night, even during uh, our family dinner, my wife was uh, praying for our dinner and was gracious to remember that I was preaching today and prayed for my time preaching. And then uh, after that, during dinner, um, she asked my daughters uh, if they have any advice for daddy, for, uh, for preaching. Um, I won't tell you which one said which, but the, uh, one of my daughters said uh, something straight, I mean, straight out of school. This is her teacher right in her. Um, do the best uh, do the best that you can do, because that's all you can do, and that'll be enough. So I'm like, man, that's pretty good advice. Um, and then she turned and asked my other daughter, do you have any advice for daddy? And she just simply said, don't take forever. <laughs> I mean, don't keep us there all day. And then I think, I think she really was doubting it because she was playing out the scenario of her, what it's going to take if she's going to be here all day uh, and miss lunch. And she was like, we're going to have to pass out like five or six of those communion cups because people are not going to eat lunch and they got to eat something. And so I don't know how much faith she has in me in the uh, ending on time, but we'll, we'll aim for it. But it is a fitting, it's cute, but it is a fitting message, especially as we are going to be uh, considering Samuel's preaching ministry here, um, this summary in, in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, um, uh, where he is, again, uh, uh, the instrument and the deliverer of the voice, uh, the word of God, and, uh, and he does so, so clear and so simple and so succinct, and so uh, he doesn't add a lot of fluff to it, he just gives God's word as it is. And so that's what we're going to get to consider but we are picking back up in our story. Again, if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, you can uh, open it up or turn it on and navigate over to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7. We're going to be reading from the ESV version. We're going to have it on the screen as well. Um, if you uh, like to have a, a physical copy um, with you, you can reach into the rack in front of you and you can grab um, uh, one of the few Bibles that we have. And then we always like to mention that if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you could call your very own, feel free to take that one from us. We know your time will be blessed as you spend reading it. But we are continuing a story. Um, we've been kind of going through this narrative uh, timeline, all interacting and centralized around the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant. And several things have brought us to this point. If you remember um, uh, way back in chapter four, um, we, we had the Israelites um, really not understand the Ark and the Ark's purpose well. And so they, they take it as this lucky charm into battle and they think it's, it's going to be the power um, that allows them to defeat the Philistines. And of course, that isn't the case and the Philistines uh, um, whip them uh, up and down and then actually even uh, confiscate and take the ark for themselves. But then while the ark's in the Philistines' hand, um, God's uh, power is demonstrated through it and plagues fall upon the Philistines. And so um, chapter six ends, as we covered, uh, Chris covered two weeks ago, ends with the ark being returned from the Philistines. You know, again, the leaders are marching behind the cows and they drive it back and it's being returned uh, to Israel. But even Israel forgets its power again because then we run into this crazy event at the end of chapter 6 where 
uh, some men um, are apparently not handling the ark appropriately. Most likely that they're um, looking inside of it, or again, they don't really understand it, that God had consecrated it um, for a specific purpose and they weren't handling it appropriately. And so at, at minimum, um, there's some room here, but at minimum 70 men were killed and struck dead. And so they end, they end with just asking this question, who is able to stand before God, uh, this holy God, who is able to stand? And so they sent the ark to Kirith-Jerim, and then that's where we kind of pick up the story. Actually, the first verse of, of chapter seven actually is a good finishing of chapter six, but we are gonna start there this morning. So um, out of reverency uh, for God's word, I'm gonna invite you to stand um, as we read. And we're gonna read the whole chapter all the way through. First Samuel chapter seven. And the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to serve, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mitzvah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzvah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzvah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzvah, the, Lord of the, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people said, the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, to Gilgal, to Mitzvah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he, and he built there an altar for the Lord. The very words of God. Pray with me. Father, may the reading of your word and the hearing of your word be considered worship to you today. Father, may we be uh, inclined by your Holy Spirit um, to be desperately seeking from your word what only you can do, which is transform our lives and our hearts. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Don, go ahead and have a seat.
So now we're going to do what we typically do in, in normal fashion. Now that we've read it all through, um, I want to stop and I want to go back through kind of section by section so that we can highlight uh, the events appropriately and be able to see them uh, communicating the, the correct message in their culture and their context so that we can rightly apply it to, our, to us in our context um, because it is uh, a fascinating, fascinating account here. And really it starts off with a lot, at least for me, that seems lackluster in this introduction. This is quite the introduction and there's a lot of details here that I wish I knew more about. Um, but Samuel just kind of flies through them and is a silent on a lot of things. Again, starting in verse one, and the men of, of Kirith-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. If you were curious where they put it, apparently they put it on the hill. What hill? We don't know, but it's where Abinadab lives. But not only that, they consecrate, they set apart his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Oh, what's that mean? What, is he, what does it mean to be put in charge? I mean, now is he a priest and he's performing now the worship through the ark or the ritual sacrifices or any of that? It seems unlikely um, because of the context of who Eleazar is in the family, but again, it's not really known. Perhaps more likely, Eleazar is just put in charge of it um, because the last time some people mishandled it, a bunch of people died. And so it's probably that the Israelites just don't know what to do with this thing now. And so they put it up on the hill. They tell Eleazar, hey, just don't open the box and don't let anybody else open the box. And then we'll just kind of move on with our lives from there. And apparently that's what they did. They move on because from that day that the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So 20 years goes by, um, and we don't really get a lot from it. A lot of people speculate or commentaries speculate that the timing of this happens to over uh, align with and uh, uh, with from Judges, probably six, and Samson's ministry. And so the events of there are probably the events here. But really, Samuel's not bringing that to attention here. Um, the, the Bible is kind of silent on this 20 years of nothing really kind of being spoken to directly here about Israel, except apparently one fact, that somewhere over those 20 years, Israel begins to lament for the Lord. And not just some families of Israel, it says all of Israel. Um, and so apparently their lives just kind of went on from normal for 20 years. Samson grows up, I mean, not Samson, uh, Samuel grows up. He's no longer the boy in the tabernacle. Um, and then now after 20 years of not knowing to do with this ark, the people have fallen to sorrow and they are lamenting after the Lord. It is fascinating. It is what prompt, I just want to ask, like what prompted their lament? What brought them to that case? Because we do get it back in 619, we have the people of Israel being sorrowful, but in 619, they're sorrowful for the deaths of the people who were killed for mishandling the ark. It said in, in again, 619, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great, great blow. They were lamenting then, but they were lamenting then about God's punishment to them. And now somehow they're lamenting about their condition before the Lord. It's a shift. They were sad about the punishment, but now they're sad about a relationship. And so somehow over 20 years, now they're lamenting and they're wanting to return to God. And we may not know again what caused that shift to lament, but we do get some insight into their worship practices, at least. Again, it continues in verse 3. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. 
So apparently in somewhere of this worship practice, perhaps not knowing what to do with the ark, they then now the, the houses of Israel has chosen to just bring in some other symbols, some other idols, these false idols and false gods. And so apparently now they're replacing proper worship as God has instructed it with improper worship that now the, the culture and the pagan society around them has embraced. And so Samuel gives them the word of the Lord. He points out that it's not enough to just be in a state of lament. You also need to go before God and repent. Yes, it's totally appropriate to lament, but don't just stop there. You need to repent and turn to the Lord. You need to get rid of these idols. I mean, God's like, I've told you, you should have no other gods before me. It's a pretty simple one. Let's go ahead and start there. Get rid of those gods. And I think, again, reading into it, I think our temptation, at least I can relate to it, because my temptation sometimes, when it comes to the sorrow I experience about my sin, the grief or the lament over my sin, when I'm sorrowful for my sin, sometimes it is just easiest for me to just say, well, let me throw in and add some little bit of Jesus to make happier, right? This is the old adage, I remember years and years ago, um, uh, a, a man who grew up in our church would kind of say he, he started going to church on Sunday mornings because uh, it was his time to put right what he did on Friday and Saturday evenings, right? And we just need to add some Jesus and then it'll make us feel better about our sin. But this is not appropriate here. Um, this, is, this is exactly what the Israelites were doing wrongly in their worshiping of the false God. We can't just add in something else to be able to make it about us and in our terms, we can't just add Jesus and leave our sin. We need to rid ourselves of these idols first. And so he can take the proper place. I was reminded of um, Revelation chapter three and Jesus' words to the church of Laodicea and, and, and on his confession, why I was reminded of it is because John um, was gracious enough to ask me to come share um, with the youth on Wednesday night. But there in John chapter three, Jesus' words says to, <clears throat> to that church and to us, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they eat with me. Almost to play out this illustration here uh, in this conversation of idols, it's like um, us sitting down at the dinner table and then hearing a knock on the door and running to the door and finding it's Jesus. And then we open the door and we invite him in to come and to sit down and we go back to the table and we take our seat again. And then we say, Jesus, come sit with us. But Jesus doesn't move out of the doorway. And so we say, well, Jesus, what's wrong? Like, I, I thought you'd say you'd come and eat. Well, come, come and eat. Come, I have this place for you. Come and eat. And Jesus says, no, no, actually, you don't have a place for me. The chair that you have for me that I should be sitting in, there's something, there's something in that chair. There's an idol, and you need to get rid of it. Oh, well, no, I mean, Jesus, just come in. It's, not a, it's a big chair, and it's not that big of an idol. Maybe y'all can, like, side saddle and share the chair, and you'll be fine. And Jesus says, no, I don't share my chair with any idols. Get rid of the idol. Remember I told you, no other gods before me, right? And to which we're like, yeah, we need to clear the chair. We need to get rid of those idols so that Jesus can take his proper place. Again, it isn't merely that Israel laments and seeks God. It is that in their lament, they're called to repent. Take down those Baals, Baals and Ashtaroth. Now, a little small side note, it seems to read in our English that the Astaroth uh, is singular but, and Baals is plural, but this is actually, both of these are plural. The singular version of Astaroth is Astareth, and uh, so it's actually not just like Israel had just one big false god. No, this is that there was many of these small gods in many of the houses. Again, the corporate nature of their confession and their sin, everybody's guilty here. 
And I'm not going to go into too much uh, detail about these uh, Canaanite gods, um, because actually Chris already covered that back when we were in Judges, and so you can go back and, and look at that. Um, so I won't go into any of the de- necessary detail, but the smallest picture probably to remember is that essentially what is happening here is that they're taking a sexual perversion, and they're intermixing it into their religious practices. Okay? And so they're taking, again, they say, yes, I want God's blessing and the way that he tells us I should worship, but then I also want the way the culture does too. And so it's this syncretism, this inappropriate perversion and blending of these two together. And this is kind of the real issue. The real issue here is it's a heart issue. Um, It's that their heart isn't fully for what God has said for them, but it's for what God has said, but then it's also for what they want. This is why he tells them to put away those gods and then direct your hearts to the Lord. This is a heart issue. Now, I love this a small example of, of Samuel's leadership here that we see. Um, if you're a big leadership fan and you like leadership principles, here is perhaps one of the greatest and simplest forms of a good leader, a good godly leader. He has two, two methods, essentially preaching and praying. Here's the word of the Lord. Direct your hearts to him. Now I'll pray for you. And that's exactly what he does. Verse five, then Samuel said, gather all Israel at mitzvah and I will pray to the Lord for you. Samuel speaks the word of God to his people, and Samuel speaks words on behalf of his people to God, and that's his leadership style. That's exactly what he does in this. You want a good takeaway in being a good leader? Well, then maybe tell your followers God's truth, and then maybe pray for those under your care that God will provide the ability for them to follow that truth. And apparently it's quite effective. It works. Because verse 6 picks up, so they gathered at mitzvah and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at mitzvah. A fascinating question for me. Um, I've always been struck by this, this notion of where is it appropriate to pour out water as a sacrifice for the Lord? Because when we go back to the Levitical law or when we go back into numbers and we actually do run into um, in the uh, sacrificial systems, we do run into some, some places where it is appropriate to pour out a liquid, but there it is always the finest of wine um, or it is always the purest of oil uh, mixed in with, again, some of the other sacrifices. It's never water, at least then commanded for. We'll run into it again, actually, in 2 Samuel um, with King David and some of his men where water is poured out before the Lord. But, it, but there's a little bit different here. It's like there is wine available. Why didn't they choose wine? Why are they choosing water? Is it a sign that their hearts aren't fully in? So they're not using the best? I don't think so. I don't think that's why we were supposed to read it. I think what we are supposed to read is we're supposed to see probably the simplest symbolism that is presented with water so oftentimes, not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, and that is its correlation with life. This is my whole life is in this. Because when you think about it, um, especially to a nomadic desert tribe, how important would water be? It's probably the highest form of no. They, they know it represents life or death, and so of course it's good. And not only are they not consuming that water, but they're giving it to the Lord consuming, to consume. They're also not consuming food. I mean, you think about it. The two basic elements of us and to be provided for for life, to find provision for life, food and water. And what they say is, I won't provide for myself, even my basic needs for my life. I'm going to pour out my life and allow God to be my provision for me. I confess my sins. We have sinned before you. May you have our hearts and may you restore us and give us life. 
I think this is probably why Jeremiah in Lamentations um, similarly probably puts this correlation together and writes, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. I think this water and this food, the two things they aren't providing for themselves, they are giving up and they're letting the Lord have all their life. We tried to mix your, our sins with your blessings. Now we just know you need all of our life. And just like any time that we know, uh, so oftentimes in our journeys, when we have a moment of, of confession and of rededication to the Lord, um, that's oftentimes when things don't go smoothly. Uh, our uh, Satan is cunning and uh, is strategic. And so we run into some conflicts here immediately after that. Verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering... And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth So here we run into this, um, you know, the, the people are, are obedient. Um, they are responding, they were repenting, um, they were pouring out this water, and then now in this opportunity, the, the, the Philistine leaders um, see this and see again either, nope, they don't have the ark with them, or whatever it is of whatever's happened in this 20 years of their sorrow, they think this is now the time to attack, and so they go to attack. And then we get this another great reversal of fates. You know, Chris has already talked about this is a concept we'll run into in Samuel over and over, this reversal of roles um, that happens. Because we had back in chapter four, right? We had chapter four that the Israelites were not afraid of the Philistines because they had their magic box. Now, ironically, in seven, they are afraid of the Philistines, but they shouldn't be because now they have the favor of God. Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Commentary put it like this, and I thought it was succinct enough to put it on the screen. In contrast to the debacle at Aphek, the Israelites were no longer depending on the ark as a magical talisman. They now wanted to depend solely on the power of God through prayer. And so they pray and God's power shows up. He thunders and they run. We don't know exactly um, what this, what events all this play into this. Josephus, an ancient uh, historian uh, that doesn't ma- that doesn't uh, align in this instance with what's given in the Bible. He, he actually Uh, records that it was not just a storm, but it was an earthquake that actually came and swallowed up some of the men. Um, But whatever it is, what is clear is there is the person who gets the glory for the victory. And it's not the people of Israel. It is the Lord. The Lord thunders. The Lord shows his power. And there's probably some great irony here, certainly for Baal or Baal, that he was the God of storms. And here God says, no, he's not. I'll show you who can thunder. And that terrifies the Philistines. I think it is a fascinating note to think about that the victory here was secured by prayer. That's the power of prayer. That's the power of prayer, Nate said, even in talking about the Thomas ministry. There's no battle. There's nothing that Israel learned. It just thundered, and they ran. Ironically, this is not just a prayer, a response to a prayer here. This is a fulfillment of a prayer that we've already run into, um, Hannah's prayer. If you remember that back in 
chapter 2. Hannah, as she was concluding her prayer, actually has a prophetic line in here. In verse 10, it says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And isn't it cool that um, the very prayer that is spawned, this prophetic message that is spawned out of the arrival of her son, a gift from God, now is fulfilled in her son's lifetime, a mere couple of 20-something years later. This prophetic prayer is now answered. And so Samuel wants to uh, make note of that. So verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord had helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter the territory of Israel. And at the hand of the Lord was against Israel all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored from Israel, from Ekron to Gath, essentially from all the width of it. Um, and, and Israel uh, delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And then the small side note thrown in again. And there was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Again, it's like, I want to know more. Why are they afraid? But we do run into the same, again, this question. Now, what is an Ebenezer? This is kind of a, a funny-sounding name and uh, kind of an odd thing. But simply, that it's that. It's a name. Um, it's a name, first name of a guy who really hates Christmas. His last name is Scrooge. Um, if you don't know him, he looks like a duck. Yeah, that's him. No, that's, that's Ebenezer Scrooge. Literally, um, here, this word, and a lot of your Bibles have little notes on it, um, at the top saying that Ebenezer means stone of help, because literally the words are the two put together, the two Hebrew words, one for help, one for stone, mashed together into a new compound word. Um, and so we have this, uh, this, and this makes sense because this is the following the Ebenezer naming, then we have this proclamation, so far God has helped us, or thus far the Lord has delivered us. It was a marker for remembering. It was a, um, a pneumatic device that was there with the purpose of reminding people of this testimony. The idea would be that for future generations, it would remind them of what the Lord did in the response of the people's faith. It's the idea when the grandfather's walking his grandson from Shin to Mitzvah, and along the way, the grandson looks over and says, Grandpa, what's that rock for? And Grandpa can stop and he can say, yeah, that rock's there for a reason. Let me tell you a testimony. Let me tell you about the faithfulness of our God who loves us even when we sinned. Let me tell you about how we don't need to forget him and forget that. But ironically, this is also not the first time we've run into Ebenezer in our study of Samuel. Because if you remember back to, again, chapter 4, you'll remember that the Israelites were camped at a place called Ebenezer um, when they had their talisman, the ark, and when they were um, just ousted and defeated and killed by the Philistines. And I definitely think there's a literary device being employed here with these two mentionings of, again, this former Ebenezer as a place and then this new Ebenezer as a proclamation to remember God's help. The contrast is the humiliating defeat in chapter 4 and now their triumph and victory here in 7. And then now the difference of when it was in your own faith, then it didn't work. When your faith was in the Lord, it worked. I wrote it like this, Ebenezer previously had been for these people the place of defeat, the place of sin, the place of sorrow and lament, and now it has become for them a place of repentance and the place of victory. It's changed. It's a new Ebenezer. Charles Spurgeon, in his famous sermon on this, uh, did it obviously much more poetically and poignantly than I. It's a long one, um, but I put it on the screen as well for us to consider his words, I doubt not that on the field of Ebenezer, there were the graves of thousands who had been slain in fight. 
let the graves of our proud, of our past proud notions, the graves of our self-confidence, the graves of our creature strength and boasting stir us up to praise the Lord who thus far had helped us. Look to your former defeats. Do you return victorious? You would have returned in a right mess and your shield broken if God had not been on your side. Oh, you that have proven your weakness, perhaps by a terrible fall or in some sad disappointment, let the recollection of that spot where you were vanquished constrain you all the more to praise the Lord who has helped you even to this day to triumph over your adversaries. Powerful. Look to your former defeats. Do you return victorious? Let the recollection of the spot where you were vanquished constrain you all the more to praise the Lord who has helped you thus far. This is the new Ebenezer. This is highlighting a victory that came from faith in God in contrast to the one that they had, that they, the loss that they had when they put it in their own. And then now they have this marker that should stand for generations to remind them of God and his faithfulness through his leader and his provision. And they should just remember that and experience his blessing and his love. But we won't get very far before we run into them doubting that again and forgetting this lesson. And after Advent and then the new year, Chris will pick up in chapter eight where now they're forgetting that and they're already asking for a king. But we'll run into that. And again, it's highlighted even more by these concluding remarks of Samuel's ministries. Just finish out verse 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, to Gilgal, and Mitzvah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Tom Constable's summary notes, the summary of this summary, uh, says it like this, I put it also on the screen. Samuel's personal faithfulness to God qualified him for spiritual leadership and resulted in God blessing Israel. He was God's man, calling the people back to faithful obedience to his will so that they could experience his blessing. Samuel was a leader who proclaimed God's word and who prayed for God's people. And because of that, the Lord blesses Israel. And so there we kind of conclude um, chapter 7. But we do have probably some points of application uh, that we want to make sure not to miss. And I'd ask, you know, again, what are we to do with this example of Samuel here in this story? I think first off, before we go anywhere further, first off, we can't read this story and not see Jesus or recognize Jesus. Because Samuel here is serving as a type figure, a foreshadowing of a messianic provision that was one day to come. Again, remember Hannah's prayer. It actually finishes with that reminder of a Messiah. I only read the first half of the verse in 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That word anointed, when Chris taught on it, is Messiah. It's Messiah. And so here we have, again, this promise of a Messiah. And Samuel serves as this, as this symbolism of it, as this figure. Some of the ways that he serves like a messianic figure is first, he conveys the words of God. It's not Samuel's words, it's God's words through Samuel. This is what Jesus says even of his own ministry in John 12. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus says, I'm only speaking what the God is speaking. Samuel similarly also calls for repentance and faith. Hearing the good words of God now, we also have our response to it, which is repentance and faith. 
The Apostle Paul points that also to Christ in his word in Romans 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And Samuel serves as a, a, messiah, a messianic uh, figure by praying or interceding with God on behalf of his people. John 17, where Jesus himself has a great prayer um, for believers, his disciples, and even us. And then in one line, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The great Messiah, Jesus, serves as an intercessory figure also for us. He prays on our behalf. And then probably most poignantly in the example that's biggestly seen here is that Samuel makes an atonement for their sin. He pays with a price. There it was a young lamb that had to die. Um, but we know that Jesus is the ultimate Messiah, paid with his own blood, a purer form. A writer of Hebrews 10 reminds us of that. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the great work that Jesus accomplished. I think this is the gospel. This is the message that I stood a sinner and I was condemned and unclean and I was hopeless in that condition and I had no power to do anything about it. As the words of the old hymn go, that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Christ has died for your sins, and he's called you to a faith in him. And I think we'd be amiss if we didn't stop and take a moment to ask ourselves, have we accepted that free gift? As you're sitting here and you're thinking about a relationship with the holy God, can you say with confidence that you would have right standing before him? And if there's any doubt and you don't think that that's true or you know that you haven't accepted that yet, I would invite you to may today be the day of salvation. Put your faith in him. Ask him to take those sins and accept the free gift he offers. And if you're unsure about what the conversation that goes and looks like, ask whoever brought you here or come forward and ask one of, one of us. We'd love to share with you. So be earnest and repent for you standing at the door and knocking. And I think similarly for those of us who have accepted Jesus, um, we, we have some points here too to consider. Um, first being, is he seated at the table? Use our illustration, or have you given his chair away? I wrote it like this for me to answer in my time of application. What are the idols that I am so tempted to turn to? What in my life am I like Israel to lament and repent from? Where is my trying to provide for myself distracted me from the truths of his provision? What is there today to take to him and repent so that he can restore? Because that's what he's really good at. I think that's a valid question to ask. And I think similarly on that question, I think it's also a valid one to ask, what are the Ebenezers in our lives that we don't need to forget? That we don't need to be like Israel and quick to forget the Lord's faithfulness? Where has the Lord helped us thus far in our story? What are the failures in your life that lead your heart away from him? And where are those moments that he's proven faithful despite all your unfaithfulness? I think we're supposed to cling to these. We're supposed to remember God in his unfailing, unending love to continue to choose him in the perfect path that he set before us. We need to remember those failures. 
And I think we need to tell them to our children. And we need to tell them to our children's children. And we need to be like Chris and we need to tell them to the children next door. And I need all of you to tell them to my children. I need you to tell my children I did my best and ended on time. <laughs> Teach them through your example of your weakness, proving the strength of our Savior. We're about to sing it. This can be our time of invitation. And these words will be about to come in a proclamation together. We'll sing, here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interpro interposed his precious blood. So I am going to turn it over to Colson to lead us in that song. I'm going to invite you to stand. Um, you can take whatever posture you need to. If you need to remain seating, you need to come and pray uh, here at the front. Whatever it is and however the Lord is leading, I do, I do hope that this time that you do the diligence uh, to consider that business with him. And then also, if you have um, perhaps gone through the uh, welcome home process with Lance or the welcome home team and you want to make your membership known, now is the time uh, to do that as well. But whatever it is and however you need to respond, I pray you do so now. <laughs>